I was in my early 20s. I was standing outside in the cold of a Wisconsin winter, outside a community center there on the street. We were lined up down the block, each of us jockeying for our general admission seats at a comedy show that was geared specifically for lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women. I was excited there in, a line, in the line. I was feeling happy and safe, grateful for this space and time to be with people who I already knew accepted me exactly as I was. It's something to be in a space with people who share a similar identity and a similar oppression, with people that you know who they know you, they know a bit about your life without you having to say it, people who you can trust to have your back in any situation. It felt great to be there, and I was excited to laugh and to let go and to know myself one small part of something bigger than just me. And standing there that night, looking out on my community, on that line of people, I loved us. I loved these people in line, and I also saw something that I had never seen before. I saw us standing out there in the cold, smoking cigarettes and drinking all different kinds of alcohol and doing all kinds of other things, I saw us and I saw that underneath the bravado and underneath the laughter we were anticipating, we were carrying a whole lot of pain too. And I thought to myself that night, looking out on these people that I loved, you know, if we keep on this way, if we keep treating ourselves this way, they don't have to kill us. We're killing ourselves. Now, I knew the statistics and I knew why the statistics were the way that they were. And while I'm talking this morning, especially about the increased risks that lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgender people face, most marginalized and oppressed groups in the United States can cite the same kind of statistics and the same reasons behind them. But standing out there in the cold that night, I knew, I absolutely knew that gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender people, that we live with much higher rates of addiction to all kinds of substances. I knew that we live with higher rates of suicide and that we struggle with depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder at greater rates than our heterosexual peers. I knew that alcohol and tobacco companies targeted our community especially. And I knew that healthcare wasn't always available or adequate or non-judgmental for folks in our community. I knew there was the daily pain that many of us lived with, the discrimination in housing and employment, the loss of family and friends. I knew that there was harassment and physical danger that faced many of us on a daily basis. I knew we came by our feelings of isolation and pain and our addictions honestly as I looked out at us and I also wanted something different. We needed to learn how to value ourselves, I thought. I needed to learn how to value myself, to take care of ourselves, to love ourselves, if we were gonna survive in a world that would rather see most of us dead. And this love that I was feeling, it needed to be more than just a feeling, something that moved my heart or stirred my spirit. It needed to be something that would change how I would act, how we would act. Standing out there, I realized that loving ourselves, that loving myself, could be a fundamental act of resistance. Over the last week or so, I've been rereading Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. If you've ever read it, you know it is a hard book and covers all kinds of topics, but especially the grief and the rage and the love and the resilience of people who were enslaved in the United States who are now newly free. 
In the book, Toni Morrison tells about Sunday afternoons. And in this community of newly freed people, they gather out in the clearing in the woods, surrounded by trees, their feet on solid ground. And it's there that Baby Suge, the elder turned spiritual leader of the community, instructs her people to be in their bodies, to laugh, to cry, to weep. Together they let go for a little while of the constraints that bind them and they let some healing in. It's one Sunday after the laughing and the weeping and the dancing that Baby Suge turns to her people and she says this. Here, she said, in this place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass. Love it, love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They'd just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, leave empty. Love your hands, love them, raise them up and kiss them, touch others with them, pat them together, stroke your face with them, because they don't love that either. You got to love it, you. And no, they ain't in love with your mouth. Yonder out there, they will see it broken and break it again. What you say out of it, they will not heed. What you scream from it, they do not hear. What you put into it to nourish your body, they will snatch away and give you leavens instead. No, they don't love your mouth. You got to love it. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved, she says. Flesh, feet that need to rest and to dance, backs that need support, shoulders that need arms, strong arms, I'm telling you. You need to love your flesh, your very heart, for this is the prize, she tells them. You have to love yourself. They will not do it. You have to love your very bodies and your very heart. You have to love them. This is how you will resist, she tells her people. This is how you will know yourself whole and holy and worthy in a world that would just as soon see you dead. This is your work, she says, your prize, to love yourself, your body, your heart, your flesh, your hands and feet, and everything in between. And this is our work. Whether we live within a marginalized community or the dominant community, it is our work to love our bodies and our very heart, to know ourselves whole and holy and worthy in a country that is bent on empire, in a culture that is bent on separating us from each other and the earth and our very selves. In this moment, loving ourselves and each other is a fundamental act of resistance. But what is this? What is this kind of love that I'm talking about, this love that can heal the separation that we have within ourselves, between each other, with the very earth? Is there really a love that is powerful enough to bring us back from the bottle, from the bag of potato chips, from the remote control, the generations of steady abuse and diminishment, the post-colonial insecure jitters? Is there really a love this strong? In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks, the author and activist and cultural critic, offers us a clear definition of love. 
She starts with M. Scott Peck's definition out of the classic, The Road Less Traveled. And in this text, he defines love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Being willing to extend oneself for the purpose of another's or one's own spiritual growth. That's where he begins. And then Bell Hooks takes it further. She says that love is less of a feeling, less of an uncontrollable impulse that happens to us as if we're being hit by Cupid's arrow, and more of an action. Love is as love does, she says again and again. Love is as love does. Love is what you do when you extend yourself for the purpose of nurturing your own or another's spiritual growth. Love is a verb, it's a choice, an action word, as my high school English teacher would have said. Love is an action that mixes together all kinds of ingredients. Ingredients like care and affection, like recognition and respect, commitment and trust, and open and honest communication. Love like this does indeed have the power to heal us and guide us as individuals and communities if we can lean into it, she says. Love like this is unbelievably powerful and strong. And it's important to understand exactly what she means as she talks about it and she provides some opposites to help us clarify what love is. She says, love is not present. Love can never be present in acts of oppression or shame or addiction or neglect or abuse. In these moments, she said, love is absent. We can't say that someone loves us if they are actively and intentionally hurting or diminishing us. We can't say that we love the world, that we're living by an ethic of love if we stand back and allow whole groups of people or even individuals to be harmed and oppressed. Love and domination cannot and do not coexist, she says, whether that domination is happening in our homes or in society at large. Love is not present when patriarchy and racism and rigid, dualistic definitions of gender expression are ruling the day. Love is not there when greed and fear are driving our decisions. Love is not present in a society that says some of us are more valuable than others. And love is not there when we damage ourselves out of habit or on purpose. And yet, Yet here we are called to live lives of love. In fact, it's essential to who we are as Unitarian Universalists. You heard Justin say it at the beginning, in the universalist spirit of love and hope we give, receive, and grow. It is who we are here. So what does it look like exactly for us to live into that kind of love? I've been finding myself living with some simple questions to help guide me in this. I ask myself, are the choices that I'm making are the actions that I'm taking this action right now, is it helping me or another person to grow? Is this decision I'm making right now, this action I'm taking, is it leading toward greater health and wholeness for me or someone else? Will this decision grow my heart? These are the questions I've been asking myself as I'm trying to live into this ethic of love. When we live by a love ethic, as Bell Hooks invites us to do, we live as if every single person has the right to be free, to live fully, to live in a way that grows their spirits and their souls. When we live by a love ethic, we are called to extend our love beyond our intimate relationships, our closest encounters, and out into the entire world around us. And every moment, 
Every moment of our lives can be an opportunity to practice. Every moment when we choose to listen first, to mirror back the wholeness, the worthiness of another person. Every time we say no to oppression and domination in all of its forms, every time we share a kindness with ourselves or with another, we are growing in love in those moments. When we choose to live by an ethic of love, much is required of us. When we have the strength to love, as Dr. Re Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. implores us, then the divisions of the ages drop away and a genuine care and concern for those all around us grows. When we look at our actions and our inactions with wide open eyes, acknowledging the deep truth that every person has the right to be free, to live fully, to live well, when these thoughts move from ideas in our head into actions out in the world, we are growing in love. Down in Baltimore, there is a program called Turnaround Tuesday that I heard about this past week from a friend of mine. My dear friend Nancy is a pastor in the Baltimore, Washington area, and she was recently invited into Turnaround Tuesday into the center to help guide a potential major donor to the program through the typical activities of a day there. Now, it's fair to say that Turnaround Tuesday has done what no safely distant institution of benign reform could ever do, my friend says. It's actually changed people's lives, not in some abstract concept, but in real form. In the last three years, the movement there has connected over 360 people to living wage jobs, and over the course of that time, the participants in the process have now become the leaders. The program brings people who have recently been released from prison together with folks who are just getting out, or with people who have been out for a while longer, and together, they work together, they learn job skills and life skills, and the people who have been able to make a way out of no way reach out a hand and help the folks who are coming behind them. Now the day starts right on time at Turnaround Tuesday, my friend told me. It was 9 a.m. when a group member she called Penny rose to read the statement of higher purpose that the participants had agreed upon. Penny did this forcefully, without hesitation, without a single break in her voice. Your misery is your ministry, Penny said. Your pain is your purpose. Your suffering is your service. Your mess becomes your message. Your test becomes your testimony. God allows us to hurt, to heal others, because you cannot heal what you cannot feel. So don't let the pain of your past punish your present and paralyze your progress and purpose, Penny read. Then the group members were instructed to turn and face each other to tell something essential about their own stories. Don't be afraid of your own story, the facilitators reminded the group. Your story is where your power is at. After the people told their stories and worked through some basic job readiness skills, all 100 people at Turnaround Tuesday pushed back the chairs, kicked off their shoes, and rather oddly but beautifully, my friend says, gathered together to do 15 minutes of step aerobics. <laughs> you see, the participants and the leaders had decided that transformation wasn't wholly possible without engaging the body, the mind, and the spirit. Everything had to be present. 
So the founding pastor of the movement, who's one of the most powerful men in Baltimore, well, he excused himself for a minute, put on a track suit, and came back and took the group through an exercise video, all while laughing so hard, my friend said, that she thought he was going to burst out in tears, all while calling out to every person in that room by name and encouraging them to keep going. My friend describes this room of folks doing step aerobics together. It's got a man and a woman both in wheelchairs on either side who are circling the space. There are people there who are all listening together to this strangely peppy music. There are folks who are twirling and dancing. And Penny, she says, whose eldest child no longer spoke to her after the long stint she spent in prison, she really did dance like nobody was watching her. My friend stepped out onto the floor with a billionaire on her right and a recent parolee who had served 16 years for second degree manslaughter on her left. They moved, they kicked, they laughed, and they tripped together, she said. And in those moments, everybody related as equals. Nobody was trying to save anybody else. Tripping over each other at turnaround Tuesday, she said, that fundamental estrangement that each of those people had known, the estrangement between themselves, their very soul and spirit, between each other, between the world, it slipped away, and they knew themselves whole and holy and worthy. In this world where so many of us feel the steady drip of oppression, where so many of us know the steady drip of self-hatred, of abandonment, of sadness and loss, in this world where the haves and the have-nots have been divvied up and divided by gulfs of ignorance and fear, the pieces of our soul can become tattered and torn, tossed about this world and separated from themselves and from our very being. It can seem overwhelming at times to do the work of repairing ourselves and repairing our world. It can feel impossible to find a way back into wholeness and strength, but I believe if we ground ourselves in love, the kind of love that Bell Hooks is talking about, then I believe that love can be that steadying, repairing force. I believe that to hope is a reasonable thing. A wise colleague of mine once wrote that when we're looking to make changes this big in ourselves and in our world, we can't do it all at once. We have to look for each opportunity, each invitation to change. We have to look for each decision we can make, and we make our own responses. So what invitations exist for you? What opportunities exist for you today or tomorrow to live into this kind of love I've been describing? What would it mean to love yourself, to love each other as an act of resistance? Each of us is needed and necessary, each of us whole and holy and worthy from the day we are born. Each of us is important, deserving of love, and not just love in that sentimental sense, but the love of action that Bell Hooks outlined, the love of our physical bodies that Toni Morrison told us about, the love of repair and resistance that the poet Joy Harjo writes about, love that heals and restores and reminds us that to live into the universalist spirit of love and hope, to embody the truth that each of us is whole and holy and worthy, it is a fundamental act of resistance. It is an act of justice. So what action, what decision will you make or not make if you are choosing to live by an ethic of love? What would you say if you were speaking to yourself or to another 
the same way you would speak to a beloved child? What would it mean for you, for me, to see love as a fundamental act of resistance? May these be the questions we carry with us today and every day. May it be so. Amen.